we need to find a way to like explain all this to people like anyone's going to really care no you know it does anyone care they're probably not they're probably gonna be like are you guys gonna still be assholes because right yeah as long as you're still assholes we'll keep listening or the opposite of like oh is the show still on Uh, all right well true Um, yeah This is Why, with your hosts, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. And then, I don't know, do we need to do an introduction to people who are listening because of Mudhouse to explain what we're doing and apologize in advance? Not that we need to apologize for any of our guests ever. No, just for our our behavior towards our guests. Exactly. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I mean, it might be nice to kind of just, hey, newcomers who aren't familiar with us yet. We're the people at the party that you kind of avoid early in the night, but late in the night, you realize we're the most interesting ones there. Right, exactly. Well, we're going to have the most interesting guests, certainly. Well, definitely. Our plus one list is going to be Our plus one list is amazing. Yeah. I mean, and we're I, already I, up to plus 80-something. Right. And two, I think if people... Like we've always said, the downside of the show is that every week the guest varies, which is a downside until it becomes a plus side. Right. And I feel like we need to find some way to tell people, like, we're not going to waste your time with all of this. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't know the person, you don't know right. what they've done, trust us that right. we're yes. going to introduce you, you know... And yes, if you're a little afraid of what you read in the description, just hold on tight. It's going it. to be okay. Yeah. Right. And like, yeah. we're not going to make you listen to the magician who made 30 minutes of our life disappear. <laughs> we are not going to make you do that. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> you are 30 minutes older. Wow. I, I don't know how he did it, but. Could, could we get him back and see if he can make <laughs> quarantine disappear? Like 70 days. Make uh... those 70 days just. Whew. Although those 70 days. Although they've been hard, they've been amazing for us because we've had incredible guests. We have. And we've got, yeah, more to come. And Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess it doesn't really change anything. No. Except we should be be easier to find. One would hope. And there will be hopefully new people coming to listen. Right. Easier to find, harder to ignore. Eventually we will be able to do more video of us in our robes. Right, exactly. So there's, you know. Tell a friend for that reason. Right. So these are all very important reasons to be part of the network. Yeah. If someone does question what we're doing, like why are you doing this podcast where you talk to these people, we can sort Mm -hmm. of have like the backing of we're part of this crew. Right. Can you tell me why we're doing this? (laughs) For, I don't know to bring the yeah. One see exactly. Together, no right? one's got it. Yeah, <laughs> one question at a time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> for our mere um, enjoyment and understanding, make yes. us more enlightened. How did you get into podcasting or doing interviewing? Because this obviously was not your first love, should we say? Um, no, it wasn't, although I, I've been really enjoying it. And, you know, I, I started my broadcasting career 
let's see, I'm 53 now, about 23, 24 years ago is when I first got into broadcasting for tennis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I sort of lucked into it a bit. I'd had a shoulder injury that had kept me off playing for a while. So ESPN at the time was looking for um, some new blood, some younger commentator types. So they gave me an opportunity. And over the next about two years, I was kind of in and out because I was still trying to come back and play competitively on the tour. That didn't quite um, come to fruition the way I was hoping based on uh, a, a bad surgery I had done on my shoulder. So I have a second surgery done. And so anyway, that's how kind of how my broadcasting career started. And uh, over the years, in my 20-some years of broadcasting, uh, I've gotten more and more comfortable with it. I do different roles. So sometimes, you know, obviously I started as a tennis analyst because I was a right. tennis guy. And over the years, I was able to develop the, you know, being a play-by-play person, being a host person, sometimes hosting segments. Now, this was all in the tennis world. So obviously, I was still kind of stuck in my, um, my little corner there. Uh, and then about f- five, six years ago, I started my own radio show. I, start, I was dabbling in radio and doing some other shows for ESPN, like just general sports topic shows. So uh, I got into doing my own radio show, which I really loved. And when, <clears throat> when that stopped, uh, because I had taken a job with the USTA running player development, more of a political administrative job that I did for about seven years, uh, I sort of fell out of that because I was basically had a full-time job in addition to commentating. So then when that, I left there a few years ago, uh, it, it was I was always trying to look for the right vehicle, the right venue to get back into it. And I've again, I've, I've guest hosted on a bunch of radio shows for ESPN, but I always wanted to do something like this where I could sort of do my own thing. So when this pandemic hit uh, us in New York a, about a month ago, um, our friends at Mudhouse, you know, I had been speaking to them for uh, a few months about putting together this idea of my podcast. And I'm looking at the equipment in my basement where I am now, where I've been on quarantine for a few weeks. And I said, you know, now would probably be a good time to figure this thing out right. and get this thing started. So that's really how it started. Uh, I've been doing webinars for our kids at our tennis academy where I work now with my brother um, here in New York City. So I've been doing those and figuring out how to do that, which is pretty simple. And figuring out how to do this, which is also relatively simple. Yes. Uh, but it's been a lot of fun. So obviously, I you know have a, a list of people that I've always wanted to talk to about their interest in tennis. They're generally not tennis people. They're people that are successful in other walks of life. Uh, so I thought this would be sort of a great way to get them to want to come on and maybe talk about their interest in tennis, something I know about, and see where it goes from there. So I've knocked out about six or seven so far. Um, and I'm really enjoying it. So looking forward to continuing. The two episodes that you've posted, they're, f- they're phenomenal. They're so good. Oh, thank you. So interesting and so, so fun. Um, what made you decide? I mean, obviously, it's a natural evolution from your life, but to, to bring sort of those two worlds together of, you know, obviously the most recent one with music versus tennis and the love of tennis and all mm-hmm. of that. Well, I've been, um, excuse me, I've been extremely lucky, obviously, over the years, meeting a lot of people through tennis, you know, sort of celebrity types, but people that are just very successful in their own right. My wife's a professional singer. Um, So we met when we were in grade school. We've been married now over 20 years. So I've met a lot of people, including Alan Bergman, through her world. 
And, you know, when you get to know these people, certain people like Brian and like Alan, you find out they have this huge interest in tennis. So uh, it got me thinking. Uh, I've been to a lot of obviously sort of pro celebrity type events. We do that a lot in the tennis world where we, you know, raise money for our charity, for example, at our, our tennis academy for our scholarship kids. So we have tennis junkies like myself, my brother, Matt Spielander, you know, Marty Fish and people that are tennis people. And then we always try to pull in some celebrity types that have an interest in tennis. You know, Alec Baldwin's another one who loves tennis and supports tennis. So uh, Marcy Klein, who is someone I've already interviewed, and that one will be coming out next week, worked with Alec at um, Saturday Night Live. She worked there for 20 plus years and then at 30 Rock. And her kids play tennis at my tennis academy, uh, her two her two sons. So I just thought it's a nice way to get, you know, people that uh, have an interest in tennis, but not have them come on and just say, hey, I want to talk to you about your career, you know, because I'm sure people like this get this pretty often. So it's kind of a right. way for me to pull them in, uh, get them talking about something obviously I know about through and through. I spent my whole life in tennis for 50 years since I started at three years old. So uh, it's fun for me to sort of look back as I did with Brian Koppelman. We're the same age and have some experiences that we both had as kids going to the U.S. Open, living, growing up in the same area um, and, you know, bringing people in as to why they why they love tennis. I've always loved art, artists and music and um, musicians and people like Brian that are creating things. I think there's always that kind of connection with with tennis people and uh, musical people. So uh, I thought, you know, this might be a, a good way to kick this off and see where it goes. Who do you think is responsible for you getting COVID? Is it your brother or Gary Cahill? <laughs> uh, very good question. Uh, I think that it's probably... My money's on Cahill, but you yeah, tell me. Well, you know, it could have happened in Australia. The funny thing <laughs> is uh, I was coming back. We were flying back from Australia on, it was the 2nd or the 3rd of February. So the proverbial, you know, what was starting to hit the fan, certainly in China um, already. And we're starting to hear about it. And uh, Brad Gilbert, who is a longtime fellow announcer and a, a great, great guy, hugest heart you'd ever want to ha have as a friend. But he's a quirky guy. You know, if you, if you know, if you watch him on TV, you know, he comes up with all these crazy nicknames. But he's a germaphobe. And he's been a germaphobe his entire life. We always make fun of him on the set. You know, he's got the Purell in the pocket and he won't touch stuff. Um, so we're on the, of, of course, lo and behold, on the flight home from Australia to Los Angeles first. And then I go on to New York, which is a long flight. Yes. Who's sitting next to me is Brad Gilbert. And he's got the full on mask on. He's getting on the plane. I'm like, Brad, come on, relax. Come on. This is it's all going to be OK. It turned out of course, that he was right and way ahead of his time. And, um, I, you know, the truth is, Luke, I probably got it at our tennis academy mm. because there's tons of kids coming through there day after day. And as luckily, as we all know now, most kids, if they get it, are relatively unaffected by it and probably don't even know they have it. Right. So it's pretty likely, I would say, that I got it there because once we shut our academy down, which was almost a month ago now, uh, right when the governor said to shut everything down here in New York, yeah. you know, I was being extra careful even then at that point and even going to the stores in town, I was being extra careful. So I honestly, to me, that's the only way I can think of where, where I got it. All right. Well, let's go back to some happier times. Yeah. Um, 
I feel like so many people have stepped on a tennis court, have picked up a racket. It's an easy sport for people to, there's not a lot of equipment that's required. You obviously have played at the highest levels. I guess the easiest, simplest, dumbest question is, what's Wimbledon like to stand on that grass, Uh, to uh, be there? I have to tell you, when they announced a couple of weeks ago that Wimbledon was being canceled this year, um, that was like a shot in the gut, you know, to those of us in the tennis world. And uh, I was right here in my basement at that time. I was on with uh, my colleagues at ESPN at SportsCenter because that was obviously a big story. But uh, as we were starting the interview, they were showing, you know, a bunch of these beautiful shots of the grounds of Wimbledon and center court and And, you know, what I will miss the most, other than obviously just being lucky enough to commentate on the greatest players on the the planet right on center court there, what I miss the most about, will miss the most about Wimbledon is we're lucky enough as uh, announcers and as a player that I was for many years to get there early in the morning before the fans are let in. They usually open the gates at 10 a.m. London time. The matches usually begin at 1130 on the outside courts. So we usually get there about 9, 9.30, whether our production meeting, if you have a match, you get there early to practice. And there's something amazing about walking the grounds of Wimbledon when no one is there and when you know the matches are coming up. And the grounds crew, not only on the grounds of the club, you know, picking the flowers, making everything look just right, and the meticulous preparation of the courts is something that just uh, – gives me chills when I think about it because I see this team of grounds crew on every court, not just center court, on every court preparing the lines, looking at the net, you know, judging the – they have a little – not a machine. It's like a – it it holds the ball up here and then it drops it because it's measuring the bounce of the ball, the height of the bounce because they they want the bounce to be at a particular – um, level, and then they can then mow the grass a little bit more, let it grow a little more, water it a little bit more. So wow. to be there and to see that in the mo- every morning is uh, something special to me that I will miss uh, because Wimbledon, you know, they found the balance just right of being historic, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you know, the traditions of tennis, which some of, you know, some people feel like it's too much, um, too much, um, you know, too stuffy. But they managed to get the balance right of that and being very progressive. You know, the latest technology, always having the latest, um, you know, know, whether it's helping the players on the court with the replay system or helping the fans, you know, with the best app you can get. So they've, uh, to me, they found that balance right. So that's um, something I'm really going to miss. We're all of us in the tennis world are now holding our breath that maybe the U.S. Open will get played the end of August and September. I'm going to say that's unlikely at this point but uh we're sort of holding out hope to see because remember tennis is such an international sport uh, and people are coming from all over the planet so it's not like you could play a baseball game like major league baseball and put it in one state which i know they're talking about uh, and really control the environment you know tennis you've got players fans media coming from all parts of the globe so basically the whole world has to be back to normal i think for professional tennis to get back to normal yeah, I, coincidentally, though, like individual 
random people tennis is the perfect sport for <laughs> this time because unless you're up at the net, you're more than six feet apart, two people, you're yep. good to go. Well, that's so. what we're hope we're hoping at our tennis academy, which is right at, on Randall's Island and just mm. uh, at the northern tip of Manhattan. That uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, that will be something that we can come back to doing because we we're doing, as I said, I'm doing all these Zoom webinars for our kids to volley against their wall and do exercises at home. So that's been fun, and I, I think we'll probably continue doing more of that once this is all said and done. But you're right, tennis is a sport where you can have a distance from each other and um, probably be pretty safe. Yeah. So what made you decide to to pay it forward and start the academy? I mean, you guys, well, you I, and your, go ahead, <clears throat> sorry. Yeah, no, my brother actually uh, started it. So I was working at the USTA for about seven years. And uh, funnily enough, the group that um, started the John McEnroe Tennis Academy is a, is a group of clubs in the New York area called Sport Time. They own about 13 clubs. So I became very close with them years ago because we used to host a world team tennis event at one of their clubs. So um, don't tell my brother I said this, but they actually came to me first <laughs> when they were going to open this big tennis academy on Randall's Island, which is, you know, right in New York City. And unfortunately, New York City has lost a lot of tennis courts over the last 20 years, yeah. basically because of economics. So I was right at that time um, contemplating taking this USTA job. I was already the U.S. Davis Cup captain, which was sort of a part-time job. And the USTA was trying to convince me to take over player development, which is big huge undertaking and a sort of a full-time job. So I decided that I wanted to try that because I wanted to, you know, try to help American tennis. And, you know, I had a vision for what I thought that could look like. So I told my friends at Sport Time, listen, you know, I got to try this thing with the USDA, but maybe you should talk to my brother. Um, so sure enough, that ended up being a great move by them and for him. So within the Randall's Island um, complex there, which is 20 courts, 10 clay and 10 hardcore is within the um, tennis world. There's the John McEnroe tennis Academy. So when I left the USTA about four or five years ago, and uh, obviously I had my commentating career and my radio career, um, but I, you know, I was looking to get back. I took a little break from, you know, the USTA was a grinder of a job. So I took a little break and uh, my, I was talking to my brother about doing something else, you know, in tennis and uh, he said, listen, man, you got to come and help me out. You know, you got to come help me out at the academy and be my right hand guy. So I've been doing that for uh, about three and a half years now. And uh, I love it. And the reason why I love it is because obviously I love tennis. Uh, when I worked for the USDA, it was more of an administrative slash political job. So it wasn't really on the court that much. So this enables me to really work with the kids and the coaches. You know, we've got 36 coaches at our academy from all over the world. So it really, they really kind of let me do that, um, be on the court with the kids, teach lessons sometimes, but really try to run the academy. So it's, I've learned a lot because I've learned, first of all, you know, to your earlier point, Luke, about how tennis is really hard. I mean, tennis right. is really hard to get competent at, not just really good, but competent. Right. And obviously, that's why you basically have to start at an extremely young age and just, you know, hit the ball a million times against a wall, which is what I did as a kid to, to sort of, you know, perfect your stroke, not perfect it, but get them very good. So it taught me a lot about how to um, teach kids, 
and listen to kids. Uh, my wife and I have always believed that uh, you don't you know yell things at your kids or you don't tell them to do something. You you listen. The first thing you do is listen to them, acknowledge them. So I've kind of taken that into my uh, teaching career, and it's very rewarding. I mean, I really enjoy it and love kind of giving back at the same time, trying to help these kids. On the note of your very talented wife and your very talented <laughs> sister-in-law, yes, uh, I want to know how annoying or how amazing is it to be at a family gathering and have to compete singing happy birthday or survive <laughs> a family karaoke night? Yeah, well, luckily, um, we don't do that too much as far as trying to one-up them. I mean, Patty, my sister-in-law, John's <laughs> wife, is obviously a famous rock singer from the 80s. She's still performing with Scandal, her band, and had some huge hits. So she's uh, she's amazing. My wife is obviously a different style of singer as a musical theater star and standards and singing a lot of great show tunes. So uh, very different styles. Uh, their personalities sort of match their style too. Um, and, you know, we we have a lot of fun. My wife is, you know, she's been unbelievable in this whole, through this whole process with me down here and having to take care of our three daughters. And she started her own cooking show on Instagram, which is pretty entertaining. <laughs> she's very cool. She's, she's very, very smart and funny. Uh, so we're, we're getting through it. Um, you know, I'm a, I've called myself a stage door Johnny because uh, I follow her around. And when we first re-met, uh, in our 20s because, uh, you know, we knew each other in grade school right. and her brother and I were best friends all through grade school. So our families were pretty close in those years, the uh, junior high years. We went off to different high schools and different colleges, et cetera. But our parents stayed good friends over the years. So my parents, while I was on the tennis tour uh, in my 20s, would go and see Melissa and all her big Broadway shows and, and performances that she was doing. So when I got injured, as I mentioned to you guys earlier and couldn't play, I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to be around here in New York for a while. I better look up some old friends. And my mom had been telling me for years that you really should meet Melissa. She's beautiful. She's such, you know, such and so talented. I knew nothing about Broadway and that world. And she knew nothing about tennis. So we actually re-met at one of her brother's gigs her brother uh, had a great career as a singer-songwriter uh, for the club scene in New York. So I looked him up, found his postcard, called the number on the postcard, which you know, this is really before the internet took off, and yeah. it was a recording. My next gig is such as it happened to be the next night. So I said, oh, I'll go down there. I was in a cast, you know, in a sling, because I had just had my surgery. And uh, I was looking for this girl that reminded me of Melissa. I didn't see anyone. So I was waiting. I was sitting at the bar having a beer. My buddy, Mike, his name's Mike. He finished a gig. I waited. He had a bunch of friends there. I went up to him and I said, hey, Mike, it's Pat. Pat McEnroe. He goes, oh, man. He goes, Melissa, Melissa. She was just leaving. She was there wow. at the gig. I didn't recognize her because her hair sort of changed. So when we, we all went out for a burger that night in the, in the West Village downtown in New York. And the rest, as they say, is history. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> Are you going to have her on the show at any point? You know, I should. Absolutely. Absolutely, I should. She'll take over, though, so i got to be yeah. careful. You know? Yeah, yeah. She's, right. she's amazing. Uh, she's been a great, great supporter of me. She's a little, she's a little pissed off at me, though, because she, one of the things she doesn't like about me, and there's a few, and that's understandable, <laughs> is that I never really learned how to use, you know, video technology to help 
you know, put the videos together for all the girls. And you know, even though, of course, we have them all on our phones and we get Facebook and Instagram and all that. She's like, oh, so you could learn how to do a podcast, but you can't learn how to do the video for the girls. <laughs> Oh so gosh. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, all right, hold on. It's okay. Yeah. No, have her talk <laughs> to me. I can't even take a still <laughs> photograph and somehow I'm doing this. <laughs> well, some, somehow she figures it all out, but she's pissed at me because um, she knows that I know that she'll figure it out. Right. So there right. you go. Right. <laughs> so what so far from all the people you've been talking to has been the, the biggest moment where you've gone, wait, what? Tell me that again. What's been the craziest thing you've heard? Well, I think it's uh, for me, and and I've got a, one with Ben Stiller coming up, and he's amazing. He's so well spoken, and obviously had an amazing career. But uh, I, I really love speaking to him, and he's such a good guy. And he, I see him all the time at our academy; he plays there all the time. So that's why I got him on. So his story, I think you'll really enjoy. But to be honest, when I first heard Alan Bergman's story. The, the writer, the lyricist about, you know, how he got into tennis. I mean, I just got the chance. Yeah. And he first told it to me over the phone, actually, way back. Um, I was actually getting ready to go to Australia. It was in January to the, to, to the tournament there. And I had planned on stopping in L.A. to interview him. Because when I told my wife, Melissa, about this idea of the podcast, she loved it. And she said, you have to interview Alan. He's 94. So he said, so you better interview him, you know, pretty soon um, because we knew about his love of tennis. And she and, and she got to we got to know him very well because he wrote a lot of his great songs with Michelle Legrand, a great mm-hmm. French composer who my wife had an amazing working relationship with. So when I, I asked Alan over there, I told him about my idea and um, he told me the story about how he got into tennis, you know, as a young Jewish kid in, in Brooklyn and going to the West Side Tennis Club and basically being told, you can't be here because you're Jewish. He told him his name. And he just refused to take that as an answer. And it was just saying, no, no, I'm, I'm going to do it. Uh, and kind of pushed his way in there as an 11-year-old kid, okay, yeah. traveling by himself. So I, I, I was like, I got to get this story. So I, I wasn't able to, to get to him when I went to Australia. And then, you know, this all started happening. Uh, obviously, when I came back, so I was like, as soon as I got it, I had told Brian Koppelman years ago, because he had helped me. I met them like five years ago about this idea, because I knew he had been doing it himself. So it took me a while. So I was like, Brian's got to be my first guest, because he was sort of the guy that, you know, pumped me. But I said, I got to get this Alan Bergman story. So both those two are, are amazing for me. And, uh, but I think Alan's story about how he got into tennis and what propelled him to to do it, and then obviously his career as a songwriter is just you know remarkable. He's still still writing songs. He's ninety four. Yeah, I was going to wow. say in the in the interview, he's ninety four, going on like sixty. I mean, his sharp as attack, phenomenal. And one of the things too, I think for our listeners, um, you know, people, some of the greatest songwriters in the world the general population doesn't know their name. They know the name of right. the person, you yeah. know, like Barbara Streisand with the way we were sure. and all of that. But he has his catalog of music and with his wife and uh, unbelievable. I mean, I just encourage anyone to listen to it. One, because the conversation is great. Your rapport is great. And the material is great. But what this they have created is, I mean, the fabric of our lives or what have you. Yeah, right, right. The windmills of your mind. I tell that story about about how that came to be. And, 
you know, he was really a collaborator. They're a collaborative type of people because they did a lot of the, the movie scores and the film scores and working with Michelle Legrand and, and Marvin Hamlish. So he's just an amazing person. And his wife uh, is an amazing lady. I've met her. I've been to their house in, in Beverly Hills. You know, they moved there when, as basically as kids, Brooklyn, you know, trying to get into into songwriting. Um, you know, funnily enough, I don't know if I mentioned it on the on the podcast with him, they're about four years different in age. They both went to the same school in Brooklyn, didn't know each other until wow. they went to California, like in you know their early 20s to both of them. And that's how they met. And then they started writing together. So it's an amazing story of a marriage and also of just the way, you know, the life they've led and just, just sweetest people on the planet. Love it. Very nice. Yeah. What's Sondheim like? You know, I don't know him as well, personally. <laughs> I've come across him a few times. My wife is mesmerized by him, uh, as everybody in that world is. Yeah. He's a genius. Um, I find his music just amazing. I mean, so compelling, and the guy's brilliant, you know, absolutely brilliant. So he, he, he does periodically um, answer emails from my wife, and uh, she gets all excited about it. And his emails are very similar to his songs, you know, like, my wife likes to say there's always the comment. There's always like, you were great most of the time. You know, <laughs> you're wonderful. You know, I love you a lot. Maybe all the, you know, not all the time. I can't, I can't remember them off the top of my head, but, right. um, but his songs um, uh, are just amazing. The first time I got to see my wife perform one of his shows was at the Kennedy Center. And it was, I think it was for his 75th birthday. He just turned 90. Yeah, 15 years ago, it might have been 20 years ago, actually, because I think it was before we had kids. Our oldest kid's about to be 14. I'm going to say it was maybe his 70th birthday. They did a whole uh, summer of his shows at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. So my wife was in uh, Sunday in the Park with George. She played the lead uh, female character. And that's when I sort of first um, got into you know, his, his, his story and his musicals, obviously I was way behind the curve for <laughs> my wife and those in the musical theater world, but I learned to, uh, you know, his, his songs and his stories, you know, it's just brilliant, absolute genius. So she's done a, a album just of his song called Sondheim Sublime. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's amazing. Her live show when she does it, she actually, uh, during this whole situation as pandemic has put a couple of her, live shows you know that, that were recorded online and then did a done a live chat during them one of them was the sondheim sublime show that i think she did uh at a theater out on long island guild hall a couple of weeks ago so that's Very been nice. pretty cool for her to do that and uh his music is just mesmerizing it's amazing yeah. Unreal. I don't think he's into tennis, though. So uh -huh. if he was, he'd be a perfect guy to have. Yeah. But I don't think right? so. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and my last question, almost kind of going off of that, for someone who has played tennis but is not good at it, what is the one thing that somebody could do to improve their game that well, you would the, say for a very, beginner? Very simple. Very simple because this is a perfect time to do it is hit against the wall. The wall is the best practice, and you start if if you're if, if you can't control the ball like from a distance. So you 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 start. I'll even stand up and do it for you. Can you see me? Yeah. I mean, I know you can see yeah. me, but I don't know if that. So I have this wall behind me. 
So it's it's a little bit um, crooked because the, the house was built in the 1920s. Right. It's difficult for you to, to hit it because it comes off, you know, in different areas. But now see the little where the little door is. You hit it yep. against there. That's flat. It will come back to the same area. So uh, a garage door is great. In your basement is good. You can even get a foam ball. We have a lot of these softballs and tennis. I'm very up on this because I'm telling all our kids at our academy to do it. Right. Uh, yeah. To, to learn how to control the ball. Believe it or not, a lot of them who are even really good junior tennis players have trouble just tapping the ball back to a stop. Uh, you can either do it on the fly, on a volley. You can let it bounce. So I played on the wall basically from the age of – I mean, I started tennis at three because I would, right. wanted to do whatever both my brothers did. John's the oldest, Mark's in the middle. So John was nine, which is pretty late, by the way, to start tennis to become a not just okay. a professional player, but number one in the world. Right. <laughs> he figured it out. He yeah. was obviously yeah, he pretty good. I used to ride down on my tricycle to my club in, in Queens where I grew up. There was a little local club that had a couple courts and had a wall. So I literally would ride down on my tricycle and hit the wall. So I tell kids all the time, uh, I'm telling you now, um, and, and you don't want to get, if the ball's too lively, so you can't control it, you can get softer balls that we use for a lot of our kids that are beginning. They're called, you know, like an orange dot ball or green dot ball. The biggest one is a red dot. So it's a little bigger than normal and it's much spongier. So it enables you to basically practice controlling the ball to one spot, which is not nearly as easy as it sounds. Okay. Mm. So that would be my advice to you, Luke, is to try that and Thank you. Uh, realize that, um, you look younger than me, but you're not a young kid. So the likelihood of you getting really, really good is, it's probably not gonna happen, but you can, but you can definitely get better. You can find Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find out more about that show, our show, and all the other shows as part of the Mudhouse Media Network at their website, which is Mudhouse Media. Be sure to follow Why the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And check out our YouTube channel for some additional great Why content. If you're so inclined, please leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Today's show was produced by myself and Heidi Hedquist, our reluctant executive producers are John Sove and Sandy Stone. Our graphic designer is Samantha Mustonen. Our intern is Randy Jeanette. The theme song was performed by the Electrosynthno Magnetic Polyphonic Orchestra. This one's for Philippe. Thanks for joining us. Flash, we're coming home. Nigel, is that you? Are you here, Nigel?